Five straight wins for the Phoenix Suns rolling into Thanksgiving. On today's episode of Locked On Suns, we'll break down how a dominant second quarter set the Suns up for the victory. Chris Paul, Scott Foster, Chapter 7000, and Nasir Little's continued rise in the rotation. Let's go. You are Locked On Suns, your daily Phoenix Suns podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. And we're back. This is Locked On Phoenix Suns. We are part of the Locked On Podcast Network, and I'm your host, Brendan Clean, a credentialed media member covering the Suns for the past seven seasons, a writer at Suns.com, and the host of the Just Basketball Show, wherever you get your podcasts. A big thank you for making Locked On Suns your first listen here on Thanksgiving Day. Getting a quick episode up for you guys. Appreciate all of you who have joined us. Very thankful for you, of course, on this day as well. And thankful for this fun Suns team that is finally turning it around. So if you're joining us for the first time, hit follow, hit subscribe, get the show in your feed every single Monday through Friday for the rest of the season. Become an everydayer and get locked on Suns. On to the Phoenix Suns, right along with me each and every day. Bonus content this season as well. You can hit the Link in the description below to subscribe to the Locked on Suns Insider Text Alerts. Follow the Locked on Suns TikTok and subscribe to the Locked on Suns audio feed if you want bonus game preview shows each and every game day for the rest of the season as well. A little extra 15 to 20 minutes getting you ready for each game over on the audio feed. But let's dive in. The Suns won this game 123 to 115. Could have been a double-digit Kind of easier win. I don't think the Suns ended up covering in this game. I believe the line was eight and a half, even if that sounds crazy. That's what my memory might serve me as. But weird fourth quarter. A predictably um, solid three-point kind of... Well, I don't even know what I would say the, the Warriors did great. I guess they just sort of scratched and clawed their way back. We'll get into it today. But let's start with the second quarter. Because that's the moment of the game. It was the entire quarter. The Suns won it 37-16. to And there's multiple little layers to what happened there that I want to get into. First of all is the, the staggering between Booker and Durant. And just highlighting, one, that Frank Vogel is leaning into this strategy more than Monty Williams did. Very, very few minutes. And it might be one or two total in a game these days while they're waiting for Beal to come back where one of Booker or Durant is not on the court at all at all times. And I think outside of the fourth quarter when they were kind of had the white flag lineup out there and then had to back off of that, um, there were no minutes where Booker or Durant were not on the court. And in this second quarter, that stagger really worked to perfection. The, the Suns started the second quarter with only Booker out there. <clears throat> He closed the first, played the last couple minutes of the first, and then stayed in for the second. They had uh, Grayson Allen out there with him, Drew Eubanks out there with him, Bates Diop, and then I believe Nasir Little. And, yeah, Nasir Little. They won those minutes 10-4, to all right? So they were down five heading into that first quarter when Booker checks out around the... At the 8 minute and 47 second mark, Kevin Durant comes in and the Suns have a two-point lead. That doesn't quite add up. 
I guess they were 10 to 3 is what they won those minutes. Then Durant checks in and plays about four and a half minutes by himself. And they win those minutes nine to seven. All right. And then Booker checks in at the four minute and two second mark. And the Suns would go on to win those minutes by another significant margin. I want to say like 12 to five, something like that. 13 to five, 20 to five, it might be. And obviously enter halftime with a 15 plus point lead. A few things within that, though, before we get to the close of the quarter. During those staggered minutes. So I thought the beginning of this was actually pretty impressive from Booker because the Warriors were defending him well. They had uh, Jonathan Kaminga on him and they had a big lineup with Moody, obviously Kaminga, and then Trace Jackson Davis, who is their young kind of combo big man. And they were doing a really good job taking away the paint and the Suns without having, you know, both stars out there, <clears throat> even though we know guys like Bates Diop or Little or, or Allen can make shots, there's a rim-running, non-shooting center in Eubanks out there, and the Warriors were just taking away the paint. And so early in the game, you saw Booker, or early in the quarter, I should say, you saw Booker make a, a tough floater. He got to the free throw line on <clears throat> kind of a call that could have gone either way, in my opinion where Kaminga ended up fouling him. It was contact, but, you know, Booker did a good job of drawing that foul, getting to the free throw line. But, you know, they have a, a turnover in here. They have uh, a Grayson Allen trip to the free throw line where he makes one of two. Just nothing came easy, all right? And they got some offense out of turning defense into offense. They got Nasir Little running off of a, a miss that he just grabbed a, a, a rebound in traffic and got all the way to the basket. And I, I put that clip up on my Twitter feed if you want to check that out. So that stretch was really about the Suns working, you know, competing on defense, trying to find transition opportunities wherever they could, and Booker working that matchup against Kaminga and, and getting tough shots to fall in, getting to the free throw line. Like that's sometimes what it's going to be, especially with Beal out. And they, they made it work with Durant in there for the middle of the quarter. It was, it was quiet. I mean, that's four and a half minutes where the Suns only scored nine points. The Warriors only scored seven points, but again, they're, they're figuring things out. Uh, Pajemski drew a charge on Eric Gordon in this stretch, which was kind of wild. There was, uh, Curry kind of started to get going here and the Warriors offense looked a little better as it tends to with Curry out there. Um, Durant had two points, sorry, four points and one assist during this stretch. So almost all the offense came from him. And then at the 402 mark, Booker comes back in and that's when they really just hit the gas and make their run. What was interesting about that stretch, though, is the Suns went to a big defense-first type of lineup, which you've heard me argue for for a while, right? I think that's their ultimate identity. That's how they're going to make up for maybe their lack of 
overall defensive talent, which even Frank Vogel has admitted, you know, they're not going to have the defensive talent of the Heat or, you know, whatever team you want to point to that's locked down on that end of the floor. And so they're going to have to make up for it with being prepared, executing and scheming. And one of the ways to make your life easier is to play big. And so we'll see what happens as Beal comes back and they work him in and how many lineups like that can they get to? Who becomes that fifth guy? What is the center? You know, but in this case, the Suns went Booker, Okogie, Little, Durant, Nurkic. And it, it worked. I mean, that's <clears throat> that's a big I don't that group wasn't on the court for the whole four minutes. Uh, I don't believe, but uh, at 216 is when Little came in for Grayson Allen. So they kind of sized up in that moment. No Gordon on the court for this whole stretch. And uh, Bates Diop even came in for the last possession, of course, and they played small, which is something they would do again in the second half. I just wanted to point out the lineup. And then on the Warriors end, uh, they went to a pretty aggressive zone in, in this stretch. Again, with Trace Jackson Davis out there and... Um, just their their kind of small, versatile lineup. It was still mostly the starters. I believe it might have just been Jackson Davis with the rest of the starting lineup and and no Looney. But um, again, zone, make the Suns shooters make shots because they didn't have their best shooters out there. It was a Kogi and Little spacing the floor and you know Nurkic at times kind of popping out behind the arc and all that stuff. And the Warriors said, all right, you know the, the Stars aren't going to have driving lanes. We're going to going to cram the half court down and, and take away the easy stuff and you're going to have to move the ball and make shots and the Suns did it but again it was a lot of work and it was a lot of transition and uh, it was a lot of a Kogi turning defense into offense and, and him making a lot, a lot of huge plays in this game in this quarter in particular and uh, you know offensive rebounds from Booker from Nurkic and they just sort of, again, grinded their way through it. So that's part of really the, the big takeaway that you would have to have from this quarter is, yes, the the stagger, the Suns figuring different lineups out. Those are all good things to see, but maybe kind of most impressively, like they just made the best of a, a physical, difficult matchup, and that's how you have to beat the Warriors. It's You're not going to easily beat the Warriors. And the Suns learned that in the fourth quarter again, but I just loved their effort and co like commitment to it to figure it out and pile up a huge lead that obviously if they don't have this quarter, the fourth quarter gets even scarier. So this was really what turned the game into a Suns win. All right, big takeaway from the game coming up next. First, today's show brought to you by our lovely sponsors. All right, we're keeping it rolling here. It's hard to come up with a huge takeaway from such a strange game. I thought about a few different ones. I'll just say here, we might as well do it here, that the Suns, and I have a, an actual Suns thing, but the, the Chris Paul Scott Foster is so extreme that I can't not talk about it. You know, if you listen to this show, you know that I tend to save the nonsense, um, for maybe some quieter news days or I at least try to wait until these things get to a certain point before I waste your time with it because look I know you're going to get it on Twitter and Reddit and everywhere that NBA content happens this is what's being talked about so I don't always feel like I need to give my two cents if it's not that significant but this is significant 
Chris Paul got ejected uh, late in the second quarter of this game, and all the players involved, and obviously you're going to hear something similar from Steve Kerr and, and the Warriors guys who are trying to defend their player, but even on the Suns' end, they said that the first tech they saw coming because it was a foul on Chris Paul in that first, the personal foul that he got called for. I think it was, uh, I, I can't remember who it was against. I want to say Durant, but that doesn't sound right. It was a foul. Everybody knows it was a foul. There's, you know, no one even seemed to think anything of it, right? And uh, it was Durant. And that's fine. And then the second technical is the one, the first one came because Paul was arguing with Scott Foster about that foul call, which everybody, I think, who is watching this game would have said, that's just a foul. It's fine. I don't know what issue he took with it. You never really know what's said, what's been said prior to that exact moment that might have exploded when the foul gets called or body language. Like These are humans, and that's uh, going to become more evident, I think, as we talk through this, and I'm sure you already heard a lot of it. But the second tech is where things got crazy, I think, and made no sense, stopped making sense. And that's where everybody from the Suns who was quoted and got asked about this post game was like, yeah, we didn't see that coming. And it escalated so fast. Like it, it went from the first tech to the second tech right away. And I tried to slow, cause obviously the quote that went viral courtesy of John Voida over at bright side of the sun was this guy's a, you know, B well, I'm not allowed to say those words on here. So you know what it was <clears throat> as he points to Scott Foster, but that was after the second tech had already been called. The Suns broadcast caught Chris talking smack or expressing his frustration as the first tech was sitting and before the second tech came. And I can't tell, like, it almost looked like he said, I've got this guy effed up, but it didn't, it wasn't fully that. And it seemed like he was just, Chris was saying, like, here we go again with this guy. Like I, some version of, uh, I'm obviously paraphrasing that. Um, I think he saw it coming. And if you listen to what he said post game, in terms of this specific call and everything, he just was upset that Scott Foster, I think Chris's words were like, you used a tech to make your point, right? And you, it's hard to argue with that. Then you hear the one step deeper. And obviously as Suns fans, we all know, uh, we've, we've heard this history, like we lived it right in Phoenix, but it was beyond that. And before that, and obviously now it's continuing into his warriors tenure that almost a decade ago, seemingly, cause it was back when he was on the Clippers, Chris Paul met with executives from the league office, doc rivers, obviously his head coach and uh, others and Scott Foster, um, to discuss whatever was going on. And Chris referenced that it had something to do with his son. His son is a teenager. So 10 years ago, his son was a, was a kid. I, I mean, I, it, it was strange to hear that come out. I mean, honestly, I kind of appreciate Chris going to the depths that he did this time because it's out of hand. And that's the point that I wanted to make about all of it is it's, it's double-sided for me. There's the NBA side, which is just to ask the question of what is so important about Scott Foster? 
You know what I mean? And like, I, I understand it's sports. I understand that there's different dynamics and the referees have a union just like the players do. And, you know, wrongful termination stuff is not a joke. And, you know, like I get I get it. It's not as simple as snapping your fingers. But um, there would be cause for termination, I think. You know, they have referee reviews. They have uh, tracking and, and grading and all this stuff. Tom Haverstrow, who used to work at ESPN, has done a lot of great stuff writing about this, talking about this stuff, the referees' side of everything. And it would be easy enough to say continued public disputes with one player and lopsided calls against that player are in- inexcusable in our league. And Scott Foster, aside from the Chris Paul stuff, has always been a fairly reputable NBA ref, you know, he calls playoff games, finals games every year, but is he not replaceable? It, it doesn't make any sense to me. Fire him. It like, just move him. I mean, people have said, move him off Chris Paul games. Sure. But if you're having an employee who, who is so, um, screwed up in one capacity of their job that you're having to constantly adjust your scheduling, your, workflow so that that person doesn't have to do that aspect of their job, which is officiating one of the 30 teams, then then that's fireable to me. It just, it's crazy that somebody like that could continue to work in the league and, and that the league really like, as far as I've ever seen has not even commented on it. I mean, I guess it would just draw more attention if they were to, but it's to the point now with stuff like this, that's just, it's excessive and it, and it creates an environment with these games where the chatter online immediately becomes like memes and jokes and, you know, the fan base of Chris Paul's team, whatever team that might be in a given season is, you know, apoplectic over it. It's it's a black eye for the league. It's crazy that it's we're, all of that is worth it to them rather than just moving on from a, a ref that every ref is replaceable it's it's officiating basketball we've been doing it for 60 years how hard can it be to find one who's good at it it's you know there's a whole college basketball WNBA G League you're telling me there's not one person who could be promoted and replace Scott Foster right now that's uh, it's stupid the last part of it to me is and I'll get to the I'll I'll do it as a box score oddity here the other takeaway that I was going to have from the Sun standpoint because now I'm 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 frustrated with this Scott Foster thing um the other part of it is gambling, right? And <clears throat> we're seeing it with load management rules and the national TV rest and the back-to-back rest, and you have to have an actual injury report, and we're seeing it in the NFL with you know, Joe Burrow and Bijan Robinson and some of these guys that have gotten scrutiny, teams that have gotten scrutiny for not dishonesty, but lack of transparency around injuries and the timeliness of reporting those injuries and the full scope of what those injuries are and I guess some, you know, gamesmanship and, and kind of chess piece strategy is going to be lost with this era of, of sports, legal sports betting and the teams and leagues embracing sports betting. But that's the bed that they've made for themselves. And so when you have a, a ref that is so openly acting against the best interest of one player, how does that not affect gambling, right? If, if you're to say that it's a decent chance and you could probably go and look whatever the percentage chance is that Chris Paul is going to get ejected from a game, that the free throw discrepancy is going to be extreme in a game, and or that Chris Paul could, you know, uh, even have one technical or somebody on the team could get one technical, which that happened with more than just Chris Paul tonight. Durant had a, a tech called on him and everything. 
that that's points. That's points. That's that's players on and off the court. You know, all those texts that were called that you know talking about point spreads and over under uh, total points scored for the game and all these types of things that are like tangibly affected by a ref who has a track record of of leaning in one direction in a game. And I'm sure there's data behind it and. Maybe it's not as egregious as it seems when these big flare-ups happen. I know Chris Paul won a, a Scott Foster co- uh, officiated playoff game, obviously at one point or more during his Phoenix tenure. It's not as if it's just loss after loss and like seems you know fishy in some way. It clearly seems like a personal vendetta between the two of them. But you can't embrace betting and have these rules going into place and injury you know transparency that you're trying to make sure happens and then let something like this go down without addressing it. That's just one more reason to do something about this. And the biggest thing is it's just disrespectful to Chris Paul. This is a guy who's a a, a statesman of the league. Yes. He has some, you know, messy, trashy, dirty plays, whatever you want to say. He's a, a small guy who's overly physical and, and, you know, has his tricks and everything else, but come on, it's not like he's hurt anybody uh, in the course of his career or, gone out of his way to to do anything nasty and he's a former you know executive president of the executive committee of the players association and one of the legends future hall of famer like imagine what do you say to chris paul if, if he talks to you about it it's just it's it's just bad it's bad from every angle and and this was a one of the bigger blow-ups we've had with it in a long time That leads us to the box score oddity in our final segment, though, so we will get to that right after one more quick break. All right, closing out the show, I talked about the free throw discrepancy and how that obviously can be tracked and and is often the case when it comes to Chris Paul-Scott Foster games, but it's bigger than that. Um, The Suns have just insulated themselves in a lot of these types of games by their ability to get to the free throw line. Booker and Durant combined for 29 free throws in this game, free throw attempts, and they made uh, 28 of them. I mean, you know, the the misses and makes are going to fluctuate. You're going to have some random nights where it's a little worse than that, but those guys are both, you know, 90% free throw shooters for the most part. And the attempts, the ability to get those easy points is, it's just huge. And it's something they didn't have before. And you felt it right away when Durant got here, frankly. After last night's game, the Suns are number one in free throw rate as an offense. All right. They are ahead of Philadelphia, Atlanta, Orlando, and Oklahoma City to round out the top five. But you look at even contenders in the league. And look, Jamal Murray's out. But Denver is the bottom of the NBA in terms of getting to the free throw line right now. All right. And, you know, another top offense like Indiana does not get to the line much. The Boston Celtics, bottom 10. You know, um, even Dallas with Luka, their bottom half of the NBA. And so <clears throat> you just, it's an advantage. It's an advantage that the Suns are going to have against most teams. You know, I, I guess you could say the Lakers, the Thunder, those are two teams that tend to, to be free throw merchants in their own right. But you're talking about playing them equal in the free throw attempt category like that's incredible because those those teams those types of teams used to just have a huge advantage against phoenix knowing that you know shea or lebron guys like that Embiid, were going to get to the line 15 times in, in these big games 
and the Suns were going to scratch and claw their way to 15 total maybe, you know, with Chris Paul and Mikhail Bridges and, and Cam Johnson and DeAndre Ayton leading the offense. That just none of those guys get there it was just Booker and then what else can you get now it's Booker and it's Durant but on top of that it's you know Josh Okogie who had I think one of his better games I mentioned him a little bit in that second quarter stretch but he had one of his more complete games of the season we knew he would play against Okogie locked on Suns preview uh, audio exclusive preview listeners heard that and I I hit on that a bunch but um he did that, but he did more. He got to the line, as I am, am saying now, but he you know, did it because he got offensive rebounds and he got in transition. Grayson Allen got to the line eight times in this game. Like, There's just more and more players that I think are threats to draw fouls, but it's led by the two best players, and, and it gives the Suns a big advantage in every game. All right, last thing is going to be the young forward breakout watch, and I mentioned to Kogi, um, really it's just little again. I know it's it's been like three games in a row of singing this guy's praises, but the big thing that I wanted to maybe say this time is Nasir Little is the type of player that the Suns would not have rostered in previous seasons. And, you know, people can talk about the trade and they can make it about, you know, is he going to provide enough value to make the Aiton trade a good one? And, you know, him and Allen, and maybe that makes up for Nurkic's inconsistencies. Like, I'm not even interested in all that. It's just the more of the point of Nasir Little is not a not a point five player, right? He's not a Monty Williams player, right? Like, ask, ask, uh, ask Darius Baisley about that, right? Little is a guy who you have the luxury of, of having on your roster and allowing to play his style because you have Kevin Durant and Devin Booker on your team. That's it, plain and simple. When you have great players who can create offense for themselves and for others at an elite level, you can put players like that on your team and get the best out of them because you don't have to rely on them to make a bunch of shots. You don't have to rely on them to even make always the best decisions on offense. Like this year, Little had another coast-to-coast that did not go in. I mentioned the one that did. He had one where he tried a, a lefty scoop layup going, uh, you know, up and under the basket. That's not a good shot for most guys, but you live with it and you still win by eight and you still get some good minutes overall from Little. You know, uh, imagine Nasir Little in the corner in the, you know, Jay Crowder spot last season where he's having to, you know, come off of a screen and and move without the ball and, you know, keep it moving be a distributor at times, be the inbounder on a lot of sets so that the Suns can run what they want to run. I'm not trying to say this guy's like a, a nothing basketball player and he's just some, you know, guy that's being propped up by the stars. I'm saying he has attributes, his size, his physicality, his athleticism, his honestly competitiveness and energy and spirit is awesome. The dude is the most fired up you'll ever see. Him and Akogi, it's like a, a competition for who can get the most geeked out by a big play. And that's awesome. Those are all things that the Suns didn't have much of in in previous seasons because they were so tailor-made to one type of player. And so as you're watching this little breakout, 10-5-3-2 last night, he was a minus nine because he was on the court during some of that fourth quarter stuff. But think about that. Think about how much of a luxury and and an addition it is to have a player like that 
and be able to get the most out of him. It's one of the reasons you make the change at head coach. It's one of the reasons that you maybe trade Chris Paul and don't bring back a Tory Craig or, you know, somebody like that just because it's comfortable. Because then, and obviously the reason you try a trade like the DeAndre Ayton trade and bring a player like this in is to say, our infrastructure is different now. Our infrastructure is made for players like this and we can get, we can turn them into an even better version of themselves and this, it's working. It's happening. I mean, we'll see how much it continues. He's going to have to make shots. Like, there's just, at the end of the day, that is a that is a prerequisite for somebody who you're talking about. If he's going to play 25, 30, 35 minutes in a playoff game, he's got to make open shots. That's a, a, a non-question. He's not good enough at some of the other stuff yet. You know, he's not a great, great enough passer or role man or stuff like that to say he he won't have to take and make threes. He will. But the fact that he's even out there is a big testament to the change of the Suns of Maine. All right, that'll wrap us up for the day. I will try to do a recap of the Grizzlies game on Friday night as the, the final episode of the week. Um, hoping to do that probably Saturday day. Um, I have a part two of Thanksgiving, the luxury, the wonderful, uh, not luxury, the, the wonders of having uh, multiple sets of family. Um, so I won't be able to do an instant recap on Friday night of that game, but I will try to do one Saturday to round out the week. We'll be back Sunday night into Monday morning with Brandon Duenas talking about uh, the week to come and the Suns game on Sunday. So enjoy the Thanksgiving weekend. I'll have a preview for Lockdown Suns audio subscribers on Friday for that Grizzlies game. Don't forget to sign up for Lockdown Suns Insider Text Alerts in the link below, as well as sign, uh, follow the Lockdown Suns TikTok, and I'll talk to you guys on Saturday.